1: is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
2: Hi guys, Ryan Sprague here from somewhere in the skies and welcome to a very special episode of the show today. We're going to be going back to episode 50 of the podcast where I had the amazing opportunity to interview nuclear physicist turned ufologist Stanton T. Friedman. Now today is actually the anniversary. Of Stanton's passing. So I thought it would be a very fitting way to go back and to look at the life and career of this man that inspired so many of us in the UFO field. He dedicated over half a century of his life to investigating UFOs. So truly something to aspire to for sure. But not only me, I've invited a bunch of my friends and colleagues in the world of podcasting and in ufology to also come on here and pay their own tributes to Stanton as well. So we're going to play those tributes for you first, and then we're going to dive right into the interview I did with Stanton on episode 50 of Somewhere in the Skies. So I hope you enjoy this, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies.
3: Hello to all of you Somewhere in the Skies fans out there. Thank you so much for inviting me to share my thoughts about the late but great Stanton Friedman. Of course, thank you to Ryan Sprague for inviting me to do this. My connection to Stanton actually goes back to the very beginning of the Black Vault, and I'm talking about literally before day one. And when I first got into the field, so to speak, but more so just as a curious mind, not someone that aimed to actually do something or contribute, but rather just learn. I was 15 years old. Uh, It has now been almost 26 years since then not to age myself, but I'm getting up there. And I reached out to quite a few people that were the quote unquote, big names in the UFO field, and I don't need to name them all, uh, or any of them rather just Stanton Friedman was was one on that list. And I was a 15 year old kid, to be honest with you, I didn't expect anybody to write me back. And one of them did. And that was Stanton Friedman. And he talked to me about his research. He talked to me about MJ 12, and sent me at no charge a lot of papers that he wrote and information that I could use. And I never thought number one, he would do that. But number two, remember me. And that meant so much to me, because there were there were price tags in the sense that he was selling these things at conferences and stuff like that. But for him, it wasn't about making even a penny off of me, but rather it was, Hey, kid, you seem curious. Here's everything I got have fun. Fast forward a couple of years and I had ran into Stanton Friedman at a conference. At this point, I did make the decision to want to contribute and 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 create the Black Vault. Never thought that that man would remember me and sure enough, he did. Not only did he remember me but remembered why I wrote, knew a little bit about what I was doing and trying to accomplish and we were friends ever since. He was an amazing researcher because of his detail, because of, of of what some would call nitpicking, but what I would call thoroughness. That he would look into every single corner of a story, that he would dissect every person, every place, every document, every photograph, every drawing, every soil sample, you name it, he would dig in and look at every piece of the puzzle. And I learned from that very early on. I learned how to be a researcher and a, a investigator by looking at how Stanton would frame his investigations. I remember one time I got to go to the National Archives in D.C. with Stanton Friedman, just him and I. And we sat at a table together, and I remember he was pulling Roswell-era documents that had never Uh, seen the light of day before and this had to go back probably 20 years or so and I thought to myself I'm sitting next to Stanton Friedman at the National Archives watching him do his thing and that was an an amazing moment for me just because of, of the respect I had for him already but just to see the work that he put in here we are in 2022 I can guarantee you that most researchers nowadays don't put that level of work into the research and into figuring out the answers that many gloss over a lot of the pieces to the puzzle, just because they think they know what the entire picture was. And I always remember and try to remember and try to remind myself that Stanton Friedman was who he was, because he looked at every single piece of the puzzle. And I've tried to model my work the same exact way, doesn't always make everybody happy. But it was a a bar that he set for the field as a whole. And it was up to anybody who wanted to jump into the arena to try and meet that bar. The last thing I would want to say about Stanton away from his research was the man himself, not the gentleman that that wrote me when I was 15. That's a given. He was, he was a gentleman, and someone who would give you the time of day if you asked, any time of the day, didn't matter if he was busy. He seemed to always be there for those who wanted to chat with him. And you would see him at conferences, and he would sit at his book table and just talk from sunrise to sunset. He was always there and very rarely even took a lunch break, let alone you, you would see an empty table. But more so than that, I think that you look at at his work and conversations that he had, he didn't belittle you if you didn't agree with him. Of course, he had heated debates over the years. And of course, people got under his skin. He's human, not a god. But the 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 openness that he had to hear other people, and hear opposing views, uh, was something that he he loved. And you could tell just by being able to to take part in those uh, on stage panels, I was able to sit next to him on many of them. He was always open to ideas and would never shut people down. He would get heated like anybody, as I said, but he was open to those. And I think that that we can all even though we may not always agree with Stanton's conclusions, and he knew I didn't. But it didn't matter. It was the respectful conversation that went along with him, and the lessons over the years that he taught everybody. I think here in 2022, we can all, myself included, look back and go, you know what? That's what this is all about. Talking to other people, sharing ideas, and it doesn't matter at the end of the day if they buy into everything that we say, I say, or vice versa, but we can have the conversation in the process. That was the person that I knew over two decades, well over two decades. That's the man that I miss. I wish that he was still around for me to call on my telephone or him to call me and we had amazing conversations over the years. There's not many people that I trust like that and uh, in, in how I trusted him. So he's a man I think we can all look up to. We don't always have to agree with his conclusions, but the method that he got himself to to essentially utilize himself to make his own conclusions, we can all take a lesson from that. And that's something that I miss. And that's, that's just such a rare gem in this field and not something that really is prevalent, sadly, anymore. So I think about him often. And there's a reason not only on a personal level, but a professional level, we can all learn a lot from him and continue to learn from him, even though sadly, he has been gone for uh, a couple years now. We can all learn from that, and many more people will learn if they take the time to look. That is the Stanton Friedman I knew.
4: I got to interview Stanton Friedman four times, the first time being back in August of 2005 for the second episode of the Paranormal Podcast, before anybody knew what a podcast was. In each and every time, I found him insightful and delightful. And really enjoyed our time together. So imagine my excitement in 2019 when I was asked by George Norrie and his team to go be on a panel uh, with Stanton or at an event with Stanton that they were doing down in Columbus, Ohio, uh, just south here of, of Cleveland, to hop, skip and jump down the, the freeway. So uh, May 2019, uh, I got in my... Uh, family truckster, and, and drove down to Columbus and uh, got to meet Stanton. Spent a lot of time with him in the green room before the event. And, uh, you know, when he went on stage, it was just magic. And he wowed the crowd with his insight, with his knowledge, with his wit, and uh, came off stage uh, glowing and uh, and yet another big win. After the event, I had the privilege to have an after-event meal with uh, Stanton and uh, Marianne Winkowski, the ghost whisperer, the person who uh, that series, that TV series was based on. I thought this was great. You know, what I'll do is uh, I'll let an appropriate amount of time pass and I'll get back in touch with Stanton and uh, really enjoyed, I can't say how much I enjoyed his his, uh, presentation, but also I enjoyed the time we got to spend together in the green room, probably for a couple of hours just uh, chatting about UFOs and his thoughts. Now, honestly, I'm not even sure if he remembered necessarily our previous interviews because he gets interviewed by so many t- people, but he was just great. So anyway, I, I thought, you know, this will pass uh, and, and I'll let some time pass and I'll get back in touch and we'll have a great interview and and having gotten to know each other a little bit. So... Uh, I was shocked within a couple of days to open up Facebook and see that uh, Stanton had passed en route back home and uh, just such a, a sad circumstance. And, and I was very sad and, and very troubled by it. It was just such a shock. I'd just seen him a couple of days before. But then I thought about it and he went out with his boots on. He went out doing what he loved to do. Uh, he got to speak in front of an enthusiastic crowd and share with him his knowledge and his views and uh, sold a few books, shook a few hands, uh, just probably the way he would have wanted to go out. I only wish we had the opportunity to interview him again and get his thoughts on everything that has happened in the last three years, the government UFO report and and all the kind of infighting going on about which. Uh, route the US government is going to take with UFO investigation and so forth. But I guess we'll never know. But uh, Stanton, uh, salute to you, sir. In one of my episodes, I know I termed him the world's greatest ufologist. And I think that's very apt. So Stanton Friedman, thank you for everything you have contributed to this field. And Ryan, thank you for doing this. Very good thing to do. Very appropriate for a great man.
5: Hi, this is Earl Gray Anderson. I'm State Director of Southern California for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. I met Stanton Friedman once, but it was very meaningful. Um, I looked up to Stanton. I had read most of everything that he had published when I had met him. And uh, I went to the MUFON uh, symposium that was in Irvine, California, back in 2016 and Stanton was one of the keynote speakers. Uh, he was also on multiple panels and, you know, he, he was kind of the, the ultimate ufologist. Uh, those of us that were serious about the phenomenon, we all looked up to Stanton. Um, no matter what side of the tent you come from, you know, Stanton was sort of top of the tent, top tier ufologist and uh, he, he will always be seen as that. Um, it was sort of, a, it was right at the end of, of the conference and the crowd had kind of thinned out around Stanton. I was ready to go home. It looked like he was probably ready to go and catch a plane, but I was one of the last few people that came up to him. Uh, I had a hardcover copy of Top Secret Magic and uh, I handed it to him, he opened up the, the book. Uh, he looked at me, he noticed it was a first edition, which it was, and is. And uh, he smiled, and it had a little twinkle in his eye. He said, this book caused a little bit of a controversy, you know. And <laughs> I laughed, and, and I said, well, yeah, it's a good book, and, and it's one of my favorites of yours. And he kind of nodded, and he, he, he didn't quite wink. But you know there was that twinkle, and he signed the book. I'm going to open it up here to the frontest page. It says, uh, "Best wishes, Earl, from Stanton T. Friedman, Top Secret Magic." And uh, it's all magic, you know. Stanton, he 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 understood the nuts and bolts of this phenomenon, but he also understood the magic. And uh, God bless you, Stanton. Uh, rock and peace wherever you are out there. Uh, probably chasing down UFOs and aliens in some other dimension at this point.
6: Remembering Stanton Terry Friedman, Stan. I think of a man who is very kind, a uh, true gentleman, and so very passionate about the subject of UFOs. I think of my friend. I first came into contact with Stan in the late 1990s through our mutual friend Errol Bruce Knapp, who was the creator of the original UFO Updates uh, in Toronto. I was just starting out as a UFO investigator and I was feeling a little intimidated. I had not felt very welcomed by my local investigators. So I branched out on my own. And here was this legend, this legendary UFO investigator who was encouraging me and making me feel like I could make a difference and that my contribution to UFOlogy actually mattered. And I, I cannot express adequately in words, my gratitude to my friend Stan for his kindness and his support. Stan Friedman is part of a very rich UFO history and not just in Canada um, where we both made our home, but in the United States and around the world. He was instrumental in the disclosure movement and getting the Canadian government to open up their UFO files. Uh, but it would take hours for me, really, to to do his contributions to ufology justice. So I think I will just concentrate on one that, to me personally, is actually a very big part. Um, I am a UFO experiencer as well as an investigator and I really do not think that the general public who have not come into contact with the phenomena have uh, any good idea that the effect that it has on us or the trauma it can create and the difficulty in our ability to openly talk about our experiences. Stanton Friedman made it okay to speak our truths. He was scientifically trained, and he called out those people who claim to speak for science, who ridicule us, who ridicule experiencers, and who dismiss the subject of UFOs. Stan was a great supporter. He was a champion. And I miss him.
7: Hey guys, it's Cam from Expanded Perspectives, and first off, Ryan, thank you so much for thinking of me and reaching out for me for one of these Stanton stories, and I would love to share one. I actually, I was very privileged, and I got to spend time with him, and I wouldn't say a lot of time. I mean, we're talking 15, 20 minutes, and that was it. I would met him in Arkansas when uh, my wife and I went there for the UFO conference. He was such a great guy. He was, man, he was very genuine. It was weird. Uh, It was real grandfather-like. I think I've talked about this before, but it was sitting there with him. And I didn't even ask him about UFOs. I didn't exchange that with him. And he seemed to be... Like he seemed to enjoy that part of it, of not being always hammered with the questions. I don't know. You know, I don't, like I said, 15, 20 minutes. How well can you know a man? But I will tell you this. He seemed genuinely happy with the way he was leaving things. And what I mean by that is I asked him, I said, do you enjoy yourself? Do you still enjoy yourself coming to these and being involved in this? And he smiled and he said, yeah. He said, I still, I enjoy seeing it. I enjoy seeing the people. I enjoy being involved and I enjoy seeing everybody. It was very, like I said, it was very grandfather-like and he was funny, uh, has a great sense of humor. Him and I were cutting up and making jokes and I had a great time with him. He was, like I think I've said before, he reminded me a lot of my grandfather and it was, it was very weird. It was odd. It was, it was an odd thing. It was just an odd thing to, to get to share that time with him and see him, you know, as growing up and of course buying things and, and, and having his things and then having sign a few things for me. So it was a very pleasant experience that I got to spend with him. And it was, it was just a genuine, I think I feel like I got to look at a little bit of him when he wasn't you know, he's moved past that part. He's moved past the, oh, it's Stanton and everybody goes crazy and all that stuff in his life, in his mind, he had moved well past that. And he seemed very happy with the way he was leaving things. And I'll throw, let me see, I'll throw a picture up here somewhere on the screen and you could see where him and I are having a good laugh. And he had said something awful funny and got me a little chuckled. So anyway, thank you so much. Didn't mean to ramble. It's just, I hadn't really given it a lot of thought until you reached out and it it kind of caught me off guard, but it really was a pleasant memory to go back to. So yeah, I thank you so much for thinking about me, folks. Thanks so much for supporting Ryan and listening and everything and, and helping him out. And it's, it's great that we all get to share in this. And it's just Stanton was a good one. He was a fun guy to be part of. So Ryan, thanks so much for inviting me on to do all this and y'all take care, folks.
8: Hey everybody. This is Eric Schlimmer. Checking in from beautiful Colorado where I'm a therapist and thank you, Somewhere in the Skies, for asking me to share my memories of Stanton Friedman. I didn't know Stanton Friedman well. I only met him once. But here we are, 22 years later, and I still remember our meeting. And it's kind of funny, I, I was in my kitchen last week and just out of the blue I said, wait, I think I met Stanton Friedman and I did and uh, so I was a college student way up in the northeast corner of New York working on my undergrad and back then of course this is 2000 There was no internet and so where you would find the, the concerts and the sporting events and the film to attend was uh, a weekly paper out of Burlington, Vermont 7 Days, which is still in publication. I'm flipping through it and I find an announcement that Stanton Friedman is coming to town. And the beauty of the internet, I actually found the announcement. It's right in front of me here. From the March 29, 2000 edition of 7 Days. And it says, Flying saucers are real. Nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman gives an illustrated talk on UFOs, anti-gravity technologies, and governmental conspiracies. Angel Center Ballroom, Plattsburgh State University, 7 p.m., $5. Now, Friedman was the only UFO guy I knew of back then. I had read a couple books on the subject and found it pretty interesting, so I said, hell, it's probably going to be worth five bucks to listen to and maybe even meet Stanton Friedman. The lecture he gave was quite compelling. A lot of really good images of these silver disc-shaped craft. He was very confident they were uh, propelled by nuclear energy. He made a very, very good case for his reasoning. Of course, he's a nuclear physicist, totally knew what he was talking about. He discussed a couple famous abduction cases, the most famous one being, of course, Barney and Betty Hill, over in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and he was friends with them, interviewed them at length, and so he told their entire story, which I had heard of before, but he offered such great additional details to it. I really liked Stanton Friedman. Again, I only met him once, but just came across as a very genuine guy. I liked that he kind of looked like a mad scientist. He had this little kind of glimmer. In his eye, I guess you could say, that mad scientist look. Probably made quite a bit of money being a nuclear physicist, but still bought his suits at Sears like the common man. And I like that. So after the presentation, I got to meet him and I said, Hey, uh, can I ask you a question, you know, can you talk a little bit more about the the uh, performance characteristics of these craft compared to some of our fast stuff? For example, the SR-71 Goes about 3,200 miles an hour and hangs out around 60,000 feet. And if it's going to do a 180 degree turn, it takes about half the state of Ohio. And he gave me this look like, how does this 26-year-old college kid even know this stuff? Who even knows this? And uh, so he started sharing the characteristics, the flight characteristics of these craft. And sure enough, they mirrored what we're seeing today, particularly the 2004 Nimitz Incident with Commander David Fravor. He was very thorough, very nice guy, shook his hand and thanked him for his time. And away he went. So, uh, somewhere in the skies podcast, thanks for having me share my thoughts. Take care, everybody. What can I tell you
9: about Stan Friedman? I first met Stan back in the 1970s when he was on one of his tours. Uh, across Canada, you know, we went to all sorts of universities and colleges talking about UFOs, Um, and I happened to be in charge of bringing in some speakers, and so I had brought him in, uh, in coordination with some of the student unions, and I ended up driving him around, uh, and then after that time, the first time, uh, he came back, uh, I think, maybe even the next year, or the year after, and we got to be friends, Uh, he ended up staying at my home, rather than going to a hotel, you know, to save some money, because Stan was like that. Um, And, you know, over the years, I went to his home. I got to see firsthand what his uh, amassed collection of uh, papers and documents looked like. The the photo you've seen of him sitting amidst all those documents is the one that I took uh, a number of years ago. And we ended up um, uh, connecting in person quite a few times. Uh, He ended up going to Um, Minnesota Paracon quite a bit and it was you know only about eight or ten hours away from me so uh, drove uh, to meet him there we went for dinner uh, in the hotel and in those uh, uh, off times uh, you know when uh, he wasn't speaking and wasn't selling his his books at the Minnesota Paracon um, I thought it would be a good idea to just interview him one on one, and I produced a series of videos where I asked him a whole bunch of questions about ufology, but then I asked him a few other things. And I remember one time, out of left field, I asked him, Do you have any regrets in ufology of, of what you've done and your, 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 uh, you know, your work in ufology after all these years? And he said, He paused and he sat back and he th- said, Yeah, as a matter of fact, I regret I didn't spend as much time with my family, and that's a message that I think we all have to take into account. I mean, ufology is a passion; people are are really, really focused on this. But I guess the reality is there's there's something more important. It's uh, it's us as human beings relating to one another, uh, sharing one's life experiences with a partner. Uh, we are built to have relationships with one another and you know in these days when UFO Twitter is nothing but flame wars and there's lots of accusations and there's false information it's time to sit back and just evaluate who we are what we're really doing and to uh, take a good look at ourselves and maybe bring some new perspective to ufology and I'm really glad I had those opportunities to uh, to spend with Stan. He was a mentor. Uh, I uh, uh, I uh, considered him a friend. And uh, his his passing was a great loss to uh, many people, and uh, to me personally. First of all, Ryan. A monsoon of
10: thanks for including me in such an honorable thing that you're doing for what I consider to be one of the giants in the subject of UFOs and alien visitation here on Earth. I really appreciate, uh, you know, the opportunity. We've only got a few minutes so that I'm going to make this quick because I could go on and on with all the stories about Stanton, but... The truth is, he is and always will be the gold standard of ufology to me. And uh, as long as I'm involved in this subject, that's just the way it's going to be. He has never, in my opinion, misrepresented any of us who have a passion in the research, the investigation, and the study of intelligent life visiting Earth and the parameters and protocols that go into investigating and researching a subject that was very taboo when he started and especially with someone with his credentials someone with his background his education his skill sets as an archival researcher Stanton Friedman was the pinnacle I've often said about him and, and well we could go way down the road with names but Linda Moulton Howe, right off the top of my head and many others when the government goes out of their way to toy with you, you know you're doing something right. You know you're going in a direction that has sort of poked the beehive, if you will. And, uh, and that may not necessarily be the, the, the fact that aliens are here or have been here uh, or the, that they, in fact, even exist it could be that you stumbled upon something that the government is doing that they don't want you to know. Um, but at the same time, we do know that that did happen with Stanton Friedman uh, on many occasions. So in my estimation, uh, when that happens, you must be doing something in the right way when it comes to investigating these subjects that we all have a, an interest in with Stanton it was a privilege and an honor to come to know who he is, and a big feather in my cap came in January, the end of January of 2019, some you know four months before he passed, when I had the chance to interview him on camera, maybe perhaps one of the last times he was ever interviewed on camera, and it was that interview that I began to see time catching up with our friend Stanton. He was having some trouble keeping his train of thought staying on track with his answers Um, and i could see he was laboring it was difficult for him he obviously knew what was happening and it that made it worse on him so i did the best i could to comfort him and rearrange things in in the uh, order of questions that i had prepared for him and it all honestly it prompted me To go in a direction I never intended. I actually asked him about his legacy and about what was going to happen with his archives and did he have plans and that kind of thing. And he actually told me about what was going to happen with his archives, about the University of New Brunswick were going to, they were coming to get them. As we spoke, that they had retrieved eight file cabinets and were coming back to get so many more file cabinets and so many more boxes uh, to take back, to collate and organize and make them available to the public. And he was quite proud of that. After the interview, he stopped me and he said, Race, he said, you know, why did you ask me about uh, my files? And I was like, well, Stanton, your legacy is vitally important to us. The work that you have accumulated, the volume of work that you have done is going to go down in history of some of the best ever done. If there was anybody really in the know and really important in this subject, you talked to them and they gave you the time and they trusted in you and you gave me the time. Literally getting off of his lawnmower, walking in and doing a, a one and a half hour interview with myself and Royce Fitzgerald on Eyewitness Radio. You know, the guy was just amazing. Up until his very last day, he dedicated himself to the truth about the reality of UFOs and I will never forget the man the best of the best a true benchmark for all of us in the study of the UFO reality.
11: Hi, my name is Rich Hoffman. I'm uh, one of the board members of SCU and uh, I'd like to be able to give a little bit of a shout out to uh, Stan Stanton Terry Friedman. Um Stanton and I had a chance to meet and about the time, in mid-70s, I believe. He was going around to many of the colleges uh, around the country actually delivering lectures. And I was, of uh, course, uh, attending college in Ohio University, and he happened to come by, and uh, I had a chance to meet him beforehand, and we had a chance to hear his lecture, which was, by the way, excellent. Um, I'm aware of the fact that he was also, uh, prior to me, I got started in 1964. Uh, he had been doing a little bit of work with it and and trying to promote the idea, but he really got going in 1970. And at that time I was like, you know, largely, and I was already into it at that time in Dayton, Ohio area. Um, Stanton and I never had a chance to meet in the Dayton, Ohio area, but we did. had a, I, I recall uh, here, going to a conference in Columbus, Ohio, and this was, this might have been in the mid 70s, um, and we had a chance to. I had a chance to have a, a meal with him at a restaurant prior to hearing Jenny Zeidman's uh, uh, recounting of the Larry Coin case in Ohio. This was a helicopter a pilot who actually saw an object that actually pulled the, uh, the helicopter up from a descent mode, and uh, it was a pretty exciting case. But anyway, Stanton and I had a chance to actually uh, really sit down and talk to each other for the very first time. We had a lot of common commonalities. He actually uh, was actually at one point working, I believe, at Westinghouse, and uh, also was somehow connected to the Cincinnati and Of course, me being a date, and I had a chance, you know, I was familiar with the uh, the organization, and we had a long conversation. Very fascinating man, very intelligent, uh, very willing to confront and debate anybody. Uh, he did an amazing amount of debating against a variety of skeptics. Including Michael Shermer, and I think Phil Class was uh, one of those, the ones that he tended to go after. And by the way, I, I will point out that uh, Stanton won $1,000 off of Phil Class for a bet that they made uh, talking about the Majestic 12 documents. But anyway, uh, Stanton was quite a character. Uh, I always enjoyed the fact that he was willing to mention the word and call it flying saucers as opposed to uh, UFOs. Uh, I thought that that brought an element uh, of understanding for a lot of people, and, they, and he was just not afraid to say that. Uh, he would he would do that all the time. Uh, I also had a, ch- a chance in about twenty, I think it was 26, 26, No, it twenty sixteen. Uh, I was uh, giving a presentation uh, on the uh, the Aguadilla case in uh, Orlando, Florida, at the MUFON conference. And I typically when I went to move on conferences, I also went over and talked with uh, Stanton about a lot of different things, got his books, of course, and had a chance to have him sign them. And so I I hold those very dear uh, to me right now. But I will recall that we had a chance to chat about the Aguidea case. In addition to that, a whole lot of other things. And I I was also a moderator of a panel, which him and Kathy Martin and a whole bunch of other people, Tony Angiolio and Ben Moss and a number of others were on. Uh, it was very, very, uh, very exciting to hear his views being, uh, being expressed and me, me being able to finally ask him a lot of them as a moderator at that session. And I'll always remember that. Very sad to see the, the man go. Uh, he always uh, was very, very uh, upbeat about the topic, uh, very willing to discuss and debate anybody, as I said. And I just really miss him. I mean, he's just a great guy. And I want to say, uh, Ryan, thanks for the opportunity to be able to express my uh, deepest uh, memories of of the man and, and a tribute to him. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jason.
12: And I'm Louis. And we're the host of UAP Studies podcast. And what can you say about Stanton Friedman? Uh, Well, from my own personal opinion, this man was a uh, legend and somebody to look up to, uh, a nuclear physicist. So skeptics always want hard evidence. They want it to come from science minds. And this was a science mind that was unapologetically... A ufologist. In fact, he used to say many times, "I am not an apologist, ufologist." Um, He was the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident. He was the first non-government person allowed uh, to investigate that and to to have access to Project Blue Book and reports and all the rest. Uh, This was he was a classmate of Carl Sagan, and even though he criticized him and opposed him, he's still coming from that era. You know, he's appeared on over 36 movies and TV series. Uh, He's written his books. Um, You know, he's helped other uh, hidden reports within big reports come to light. For example, Project Blue Book had a special report, number 14, I think it was called. And uh, essentially, it was another 3,200 sightings. And the unknown percentage was 21%. So when you hear reports of things that are like one percent couldn't be explained or, you know, one out of a thousand or whatever that is, this was a buried report that had much stronger numbers. And he brought that to light. And uh, for myself, I regret never having a chance to meet the man. Um, I think very highly of him. I would have loved to have him on the show. What about you, Jay?
13: Well, yeah, I would agree with you. He was uh, a pioneer when he came down to ufology and somebody of his reputation. I mean, he couldn't beat that. And the fact that he put himself out there to say, hey, something's going on here. Look at the evidence that we're able to gather. He had his critics and he was harsh on his critics as, as probably as, as equally as hard as they were harsh on him. But he did have a point. He put himself out there. He was the one who had the boots on the ground investigating the stuff, coming out with reports, while his critics would only just read his material after the fact and then say something to the effect that they didn't agree with what he said.
12: Yeah, he was definitely critical of debunkers, and most of his uh, critics were people that said, "Well, there's no conclusive evidence." In fact, he got in a debate with Philip Class, and Philip Class said, "I'll pay Stanton Friedman a hundred dollars for any concrete proof," and Stanton gave him ten different points of actual documented proof, and Philip Class gave him a thousand bucks. So, oh, and wow. even his debunkers respected him. You know, he's uh, he's a man without enemies, really, and yeah. somebody everybody knows and loves and respects never had his own real opinion of things it was just more of a humbling yeah there's your sketch of Stanton Friedman you know yeah
13: everybody has uh, a Stanton Friedman you know uh, story or, or you know documentary that if he wasn't part of a UFO documentary back in the day it wasn't worth watching Uh, I agree. Yeah.
12: Yeah. And and I looked it up before doing this little clip and yeah, 36 different movies and TV series he's appeared on. Oh really? uh, You know, he was a nuclear physicist. He was a professor at the university of Chicago. He's got a master's degree. You know, when people talk about, you know, only sort of open-minded or kind of, you know, spatial thinkers are into the topic of ufology. You don't get much more scientific than a nuclear physicist. I mean, he's the real deal and still humble enough to say, hey, we don't know. And in fact, the more you looked at it, the more you know, unknown became improbable. And it was more like unidentified. And uh, you know, he was big on kind of separating the whole, are they real question versus how do they operate question. And are they real for him was a given. So he wanted to focus more on, you know, the size, the surface, the shape, the texture. Like, did they exist? Let's get into the, you know, what we call nuts and bolts ufology today. It wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the work of him, you know, to step out and be crazy enough to say, hey, call me what you like. But this is actually there. There's science behind it everything that uh, came out that said it was inconclusive was nonsense you know he found buried documents modified documents he's been through this you know george knapp is a legend but i mean stanton friedman came before george knapp you know he's the in my opinion uh, one of the original torchbearers of this whole thing if not the pioneer
13: i only found out that stanton was canadian when he passed away i had no idea that he was canadian I was yeah
12: he i think he lived most of his life in the states he got married and then when his first wife passed away he moved back to st john new brunswick and uh coincidentally he i mean i'm from toronto and so when i read that he passed away in toronto i looked it up and it, he wasn't living there he had a heart attack at the toronto airport so um yeah i guess when it's your time it's your time regardless if you're stanton freeman or not
13: Well, thanks, Ryan, for having us on uh, the podcast. We really appreciate it. For all your listeners out there, if you get a chance, check out UAP Studies Podcast.
14: Hey, this is Alan B. Smith from Paranormal Now. Ryan, thank you so much for allowing me to share my thoughts on Stanton Friedman. Um, On Paranormal Now, the first interview I did was with Stanton Friedman, and that's because he cared to get his message out, which was his research and the fact that he believed that extraterrestrials are visiting earth and he had the facts to support it. What made him amazing was his generosity of spirit. I was just a a fledgling podcast and he was willing to come on and just talk. People could stop him in the the street and he'd stop and give them the time and talk about the subject on camera, off camera, whatever. That was the kind of person that he was. Um, it often wasn't always seen because the subjects that came up were ufology but he really was a really kind uh, person and very gracious but what i want to import, impart in the most i think is how profoundly impactful he was his voice he in the way he could communicate his cadence his passion it, it Transmitted through TV, in person, in writing, um, in late night radio, uh, like Coast to Coast AM, when I heard him um, on there many years ago. Um, And as a kid in the late 80s and the 90s, the Roswell case um, blew ufology up. And it was like a wave that just went across the country and the entire world. And a lot of that. I give credit to Stanton Friedman. He spoke in a way that resonated with people. He can talk about uh, science and physics and and you know documents and dates and names that for some might have otherwise been boring, and somehow he made it enthralling and and not with hyperbole. He he was just such an eloquent speaker and. I have so much respect for the passion that he was able to imbue on younger minds, um, from when I was growing up to um, recent years, and I hope, I hope perpetually and indefinitely, because you know you can go out and you can listen to his interviews and his recordings and TV shows and documentaries with him, um, and that's for generations to come. And I think that you know there's a resource of knowledge that is forever valuable. Um, Whether we get full disclosure or not, um, I encourage everyone to go out and just listen to Stan again. You know, he had a, he had a way of communicating um, that made it okay to talk about the idea that extraterrestrials are visiting our earth, that Roswell crash was real. And there, there was a UFO that was downed in Corona, New Mexico and, and you can take his phrasing and bring that into a conversation with friends and family without sounding, um, you know, hyperbolic. So, again, I, I can't express how much I appreciate the work he did sociologically for, for all of us who care about this subject of ufology. So thanks again, Ryan. Uh, peace and love to everybody out there and live in the mystery.
15: Hi, I'm Ross Coulthard, author of In Plain Sight. I never had the pleasure of meeting Stan Friedman, but I deeply admire how, as a scientist, he recognised very early on that UAPs are a real phenomenon, not something that can be readily dismissed with a prosaic explanation. I also enjoy how he monstered that clique of blinkered debunkers who seem determined to reject any analysis of the available evidence with his definitive cranky rebuttal. In particular, I share Stan's scepticism about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. If there is a highly advanced non-human intelligence out there, elsewhere in the universe, why on earth would they use radio waves to communicate? I'm sure Stan's on a cloud somewhere cursing Congress for being so slow to open up about what it now knows.
16: Stanton Friedman. My fondest memory of Stanton is my first one. Uh, Growing up, Stanton was the face of ufology, his TV, his documentaries, his books. I read them all. And when I started Fade to Black, I wanted Stanton on the show like everybody does, right? So I tried to get his email. I go to his website and his phone number is there. And I stared at it for a minute. Do I, do I dial this number? And the crazy part about this is that I thought I was the only one going through this. And I have since heard this story repeated many times with others. Uh, but it's this. I, I dialed the number. He picked up. And uh, Stan Friedman. And I said, uh, Stan, this is Jimmy Church. I give him the pitch. Started a new show and would love to have you on. When? This week. Cool. Send me the info. I'll be there. And it was, not only did he make me feel comfortable, but that original interview uh, for me was divine. And speaking to the Stanton Friedman. And over the years, he became a great friend. And the conversations that we had both public and private were were just amazing and and I'll I'll cherish them forever there was one other moment I want to share with you uh, Stanton was just amazing uh, we were on stage we got a couple of thousand people in front of us and I'm I'm hosting uh, this panel Stanton is on the panel and the subject comes up about Bob Lazar And I said whatever I said. And Stanton schooled me with everybody there. And I was ruffled. And it was an honor to have that happen. Later, after the panel ended, we were uh, backstage. And Stanton came up to me and slapped me on the the shoulder and said, You did good, kid. (laughs) And Stanton was the best. Thank you, Ryan, uh, for doing this little celebration of Staten Friedman. This is Jimmy Church of Fade to Black. Everybody behave out there and enjoy the rest of the show.
2: Stan, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies.
17: Well, uh, I enjoy doing interviews, and I certainly enjoy talking about what's going on in the skies. <laughs> <Sure>.
2: <laughs> yes, I would say so, and we will definitely get into that. I mean, Stan, so the first book I ever read on the UFO topic was Crash of Corona, written by both you and Don Berliner. And I was terrified. Oh terrified as a 13-year-old to think that, you know, UFOs are flying around in space, but now they're also crashing on our planet. And that fear turned to obsession. I've been researching ever since. So I would love to hear, you know, for our audience that may not know this story, your origin story, as it were, of how you got involved in all this to begin with.
17: Well, it was one of a number of topics I was interested in. I was a, As a kid, I read science fiction. You know, when I was uh, 10 years old and the pulp magazines, I'm old enough to remember the pulps and all that sort of stuff. And then I got into more serious science and I got a couple of degrees and I had a habit of buying books and new stuff and... I needed one more book. It's strictly uh, unintentional. Uh, life just moves on. Um, I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping on an order for Marlboro Books in New York. Ah, there's a report on unidentified flying objects. This is 1958, mind you, by Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt. Now, I was working on an Air Force sponsored program, the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department at General Electric, so I had a great deal of respect for the Air Force then. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I got the book. Figured it was two two ninety nine or something, marked down to a dollar and because uh, it saved me the shipping costs on that big order of books. It really wasn't costing me anything. So what the heck? We could afford it if it's nonsense. Okay. So I read the book, and it intrigued me. It didn't convince me. But I read ten more books. And then in the early uh, 1960s, at the University of California, Berkeley Library, I lived at that time uh I had moved from General Electric to Aerojet General Nucleotics, which is east of San Francisco. So I'd go over to Berkeley and I read ten more books. And then I made the had the great epiphany, if you will. I found a copy of something Project Blue Books Special Report number fourteen. And a surprising thing was it hadn't been mentioned in any of the ten books that I had read. So that seems obvious of something. Project Blue Book, Special Report Number 14. And the surprising thing was it hadn't been mentioned in any of the 10 books that I had read. So that seems strange. Where the heck did this come from? You know? And it was an official government report. And the work I found out later was done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. And it, as it turns out, I had dealings with uh, Battelle. I did a study... How do you like this title for a study? Analysis and Evaluation of Fast and Intermediate Reactors for Space Vehicle Application. One important word was left out. Soviet. (laughs) I was looking at the literature that I could get on Russian uh, publications in the scientific areas that would be concerned with developing nuclear power systems for space. And uh, I would go back to the people who had the best collection of Russian literature were... Patel Memorial Institute, and it turns out they were the people who did Blue Book Special Report 14. Even though their name isn't on it, interesting, their connection was classified. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, that, I, I was intrigued with Patel. I, I would go back there uh, once a month or so to talk to the people at Patel, and then also Air Force uh, people at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. So, uh, I, I would uh, go back there. I was very impressed with Patel. But I also would be looking at their UFO stuff while I was coming into
2: it, right?
5: <laughs>
17: and that that got me really tooling along because Blue Special Report fourteen, uh, the biggest study ever done for the United States Air Force, mind you. They looked at thirty two hundred and one sightings. The report has hundreds of charts, tables, graphs, maps. I was in data heaven. I'm a data fiend, and uh, what I found was I also discovered, how should I put this, official lying. That's a nice way to say that. The press release, which the guy who put this privately published version together included, uh, dated 1955, in the press release it says, On the basis of this study... We believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. This is the Secretary of the Air Force, my last name was Coros. We believe no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Well, if you only saw the press release, that sounds pretty damn good. <laughs> but I had to report... And I'm a data hound. Where'd they get this unknown 3%? The unknowns were 21.5%. And 21.5 is not 3 rounded off. They also, further uh, saying that they were full of baloney, was they did a cross comparison between the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in, and the knowns. Remember, the question isn't are all UFOs alien spacecraft? The question is are any? You know, are all isotopes special? Well, of course not. But fortunately for us nuclear guys, there's something are. They also did a quality evaluation. The better the quality of the sightings, the more likely to be unexplainable. And a cross-comparison between unknowns and knowns showed that the probability that the unknowns were mis- just misknowns was less than 1%. The groups did not have the same characteristics at all. So I was shocked by this, and the duration of observation was longer for the unknowns than the knowns, and all kinds of other data that says these darn things are real. And so, I don't like being lied to. I worked under security at that time, and you know, I sometimes have to—how should I say it? Tiptoe around (laughs) the information, but flat out lying—that's another story. So I got determined. I want to find out why we're being lied to. I don't like being lied to. And uh as a scientist especially. And so uh I started digging into the literature and digging out more information and the quest hasn't ended to tell you the truth. But I joined the first thing I did was join Apro and NICAP, the two big organizations which are both defunct now. I joined them to get their monthly newsletters or bi monthly whatever it was back like then. And uh, to keep up there was an active group in pittsburgh when i finally moved there i was one of these you know (laughs) life doesn't take the path you expect it to my dad worked for the same company for 37 years so okay my first job out of college in general electric well they're a big company i could work for them i looked it up i could retire because i started young when i was 57 that's great. And they've they got several nuclear divisions. No question at all. It's a lifetime career. Wow. Huh. Three years later, the program was going down the tubes. I saw the man writing on the wall and got out. Joined another company for, for three years and then realized they were going down and got another job, <laughs> three years, <or laughs> you know. Totally unexpectedly, you understand. Because right. I was having to move my family. Uh, it's not just walking down the street, okay, I'll well, drive two miles this way instead of five miles that way. But yeah. uh, uh, moving across this, the country, get to see the country, I guess. Uh, and so I spent 14 years in industry. And on the UFO scene, you know, I was reading the books and stuff, and we set up a group in Pittsburgh, um, a, a NICAP subcommittee is what they had at that time. And then we set up on our own because we didn't like them telling us what we should be doing from the, NICAP was headquartered in Washington. That was Major Kehoe. And we had a bunch of us professional people, mostly from Westinghouse where I work. So we set up the group. And I didn't, uh, I called, I called Frank Edwards. I had gotten to know him when he was in the, uh, he wrote a book, Flying Saucer's Serious Business. He was a journalist from Indianapolis. And on one of my stints, I worked for General Motors Allison Division, which was working on military compact reactors. Nobody thinks of GM and nuclear reactors, but they were. And, uh, got to know Frank, and when I moved to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, I told Frank, I want to go public. You know everybody. Give me some names of the media people, because our group was, good things were happening. I I felt very good about the group. So he gave me a bunch of names. He was a a wide-ranging journalist. (laughs) Let's put it that way. And one of them was the producer of a radio show with a great name, Contact. <laughs> Perfect for KDKA Pittsburgh which is the big station in town the big media outlet and so I called this producer and thought heck uh, I'm a Westinghouse nuclear physicist Pittsburgh's Pittsburgh's kind of a Westinghouse town or was uh, Westinghouse has kind of gone down the tubes but, uh, uh, to some extent <laughs> uh, and so as much you might want me to have me as a guest on your show contact, don't call us we'll call you Okay, what the heck? Well, less than a month later at 6.30 in the evening, I get a call from the, this producer. Uh, we had a cancellation. Any chance you could do the show tonight at 7 o'clock? <laughs> 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 well, I was close, lived close enough to the station to have to go down there. Now, they didn't do it by radio, by telephone at that time. Right. So I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So I went down did the show. Now, Admittedly, I wasn't as sharp at dealing with nasty, noisy negativists as I am now. I've heard all the anti-arguments.
2: <laughs> right, you acquire that as time goes on, right? Uh,
17: yes. <laughs> and But anyway, I did the show. And as it happens, a woman at Westinghouse, where I worked at the Astronaut Lab, called me afterwards. She happened to hear the show and said, Stan, we're reading Frank's book and my Frank Edwards book. Uh, in my book review club any chance you could give us uh, a lecture in my living room not sure why not wasn't too far away i lived downtown and so forth so that my first talk was in her living room uh, a few dozen people oh. and the word got out and i did more and then the i did the show again and uh one day, out of only two days in three years, did I drive to work from downtown with Joanne, who was the supervisor at Westinghouse Astronaut Lab. And we were talking, and I was saying, gee, I'd sure like to speak at Carnegie Mellon University, the big university in town. And, well, did you talk to the dean? No. Uh, I talked to so-and-so, and and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. Give him a call. He's heard you on the radio. (laughs) Oh, okay. And so I called Gene, his name was, and we set a date right away uh, four weeks later. And the last question was, uh, how much do you want? Well, it was during the day, so I'd have to take some time off work. So I figured I ought to at least get recovered that my lost pay. Mm-hmm.
9: Uh,
17: and so I, uh, how about a hundred dollars? Thinking he'd knock me down to fifty, you understand? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sure. And then he told me because I knew his wife uh, what he was paying the other speakers in the series: fifteen hundred,
2: seventeen.
17: Wow. So, he, but. The, the talk went extremely well we had a big crowd uh, no nasty questions or anything and he wrote a nice letter to the agent from whom we had booked all these other people and they booked me at a breakthrough talk the engineering society of detroit wow 300 bucks and expenses i'm in the big time here you know? <laughs> big
2: top yep <laughs>
17: well what what really shocked me, and I must admit, I was surprised. They were sold out two weeks in advance for a thousand and eight people for dinner and a talk, and there were no negative questions. Now that couldn't help but impress me. In the Engineering Society of Detroit—we're not talking about little ladies in tennis shoes, you know, or cooks with pin hats on. Yeah. Uh, and again, there were no negative questions, and then. Another talk that really impressed me was the local section of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics got together with the, uh, I guess it was the Nuclear Society, there were two groups, sponsored a a joint lecture. We had over 400 people there. And again, some management at Westinghouse was there because it was well publicized and no negative questions and stuff. That had an impact because uh, I got a call from somebody at Los Alamos, Stan, I understand you're giving lectures about flying saucers. Uh, Typically, those flying saucers aren't real. I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, how about speaking to the local section of the American Nuclear Society? I said, oh, I'd be delighted to. No, I mean on an expense account, Stan. Well, I, I don't make those decisions. I'll ask management. Now, I'm a member of the American Nuclear Society. Westinghouse was a corporate member. And, of course, Los Alamos was as well. And they said yes. So they paid for me to go on an expense account from Pittsburgh to Los Alamos to give a lecture. And that was pretty neat because they had over 400 people, one of the best crowds they ever had. How can I not be respectful of that audience? I've been to Los Alamos on business, nuclear rockets and things like that. These are professional people, you know. Yeah. So when I get a good response from these kinds of people, that affects me. I, I'm, I'm doing something useful in sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and Engineering Society. Right. Were more besides, you know. So it was in these circles, and I stress that because people tend to think, well, the only people interested were nutty groups, you know, or the ten crowd. Well, it wasn't like that at
2: all. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, since then, you've done like got 600 college campuses, every U.S. state, 10 Canadian provinces. Like, I've heard you, you 19 know... 19 other countries. 19 <laughs> other countries. That's incredible. These, these aren't just, I think, like people think, these small little groups of, like, 10, 12 people who are all hardcore no. believers. These are people that at all. have genuine questions, and they want answers. And, you know, the fact that, you know, these the people you're speaking to, you know, at Los Alamos, and all of these prestigious places. How how was the response? You said you know it, it, was, it was good. Great. Yeah.
17: Well, I judge by the question and answer period. Right. You right. Am coming at me? And I remember at one lecture, first guy up in the question and answer period. I've never heard so much nonsense in one night in my life. He said. <laughs> that's a great way to start, you know. And uh, how did I pick him? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I said, can you please be more specific, sir? I'm glad I said that. I don't know. If you would have asked me, I don't know what I would have said I would say, but that's what I did say. <laughs> well, you said that Betty and Barney Hill were taken uh, to Zeta Reticuli and back in two hours. I said, no, sir. What I said was they were taken on board a craft. Uh, they didn't go anywhere. And then were a couple more equally uninformed questions. And then finally, after the third one, somebody in the, which I had answered, and somebody in the audience says, How about taking some sensible questions? <laughs> <laughs> this guy got up and left, and I said, I'll take your question, but who was that? Obviously, I irked him. Well, it turns out he was a professor of physics. He okay. hadn't heard what I said at all. So it alerted me to the fact that you can come on pretty strong and you won't get a hard, respectable, hard time from people. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. And uh, one one guy in a question and answer period, uh, I had given some data on a Gallup poll showing that the greater the education, the more likely to believe in flying saucers, which comes as a surprise for a lot of people. He said, how about polling this audience? I said, well, this is uh, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, about 600 people, they were sitting in the aisles. I said, well, I normally, I'm the one who sticks his neck out, I'm not asking the audience. So he said, well, I don't think anybody mind, and people clapped, they'd heard my lecture already, you understand. And, and so I said, okay, I'll ask two questions. How many believe no UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? And how many believe some UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? I asked those two questions. Sir. I told them what I was going to ask. More than 90% said they thought some were. It's reassuring to me, in other words, having gone through all this with all these places and stuff, that even though people are always saying to me, oh, you must get a hard time, I don't. I really don't. I'm not a masochist, I, I don't do this, you know, to strain the nasty, noisy, negativists. I do this to present information. And, you know, I'm a little sneaky. Usually about five large-scale scientific studies describe what's in them, show a slide to go with it and so forth, and then I casually ask, how many people here have read this? So typically, you know, I might get five. <laughs>
2: Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, yeah.
17: (laughs) Yeah. And so I know that most people haven't looked at the evidence, and I've been told by people that they were completely unaware of all this data that I present, because I'm a data and evidence man. Uh, I talk about not only Blue Book Special Report 14, I have copies for sale because it wouldn't be fair for me to say, oh, this is this wonderful study. Well, I don't know where you can get a copy, but uh, uh, that's not crooked uh, because then maybe you're lying. You know, maybe it doesn't say what you say it says, et cetera. So here, here are, here are copies. I'll autograph <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Backing, backing it up, I think that's important. And, you know, next week we have Cheryl Costa on the show who wrote a book about data and she told a wonderful story yeah about showing you the book and you told her, finally, someone's doing data. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious.
17: Well, it's true. That's a rare book because it's got all kinds of information about who see things and, and stuff. And it's a big, fat report. That's not 20 pages kind of thing. It's right. A couple hundred. And so I hope she sells a ton of them because darn it. Conclusions about controversial subjects should be based on evidence, not feelings, not theoretical, not uh, research by proclamation, which is what I run across a lot uh, from the noisy negativists. And so I like to have the data in my pocket, so to speak. Why is it that most people don't believe in UFOs? Well, you know, what's a reasonable number? 20 <laughs> yeah. percent? That's a lot. Especially when the airport says 3%. <laughs> right. I've I found there's great interest all over the world, and people are interested. They ask reasonable questions. And sometimes I have to say, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't tell them, why does the government do that? And I say, well, in the first place, let's make clear I do not speak for the government, I speak <laughs> <Yeah>. for me. <laughs> yeah. So I can only hypothesize. On the other hand, I do have some advantages as a speaker and writer about this subject. One, I worked under security for 14 years. I know how the system works. I had clearance for 14 years, acute clearance giving me access to nuclear data and stuff like that. Two, I worked on advanced propulsion systems. One of the biggest objections from, quote, scientists, unquote, you can't get here from Stan. Have you forgotten? You know, things can't go faster than the speed of light, and they have to come from hundreds of light-years away, and which is nonsense and all that. That's one of the things that's changed, our perception of where we fit in the scheme of things. You know, when Frank Drake, in about 1960, first talked about uh, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, he met with radio telescopes, of course, but uh, listening for signals because the astronomical, community can't imagine how anybody could go the astronomical distances. But he thought there might be 6,000 places in the galaxy that could be sending signals. Wow, 6,000! Well, because there aren't many planets, you know. There are many people saying, hey, we got the only solar system, man. That has changed with the Kepler satellite, this incredible device which goes out and back and did this for several years looking for planets not easy to find even with a fancy piece of equipment but if you're above the atmosphere you can actually spot the planet going across the face of its star that's that's pretty sensitive is what i'm I'm a great admirer of the technology and so when you do that holy cow there are planets all over the place Absence of evidence is not evidence for absence. That holds for flying saucers as well. The fact that you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not true. And so uh, the, the latest numbers suggest that there's 1.6 planets per star on the average. Now, what does that mean? to give you a, a neighborhood uh, survey, so to speak. There are about 10,000 stars within 100 light years of here. It's not that I counted them. The astronomers counted them. That means there are about 16,000 planets within 100 light years. So we go from Frank's 6,000 planets to uh, at least 6 billion in the galaxy. So there's several things that our understanding has caused us to change in our view about. One is the number of planets. One is, and the number of stars too for that matter. Remember at one time we thought there was only one galaxy. (laughs) Sorry, billions of them too, folks. (laughs) But Beyond that, we also, in the 1920s, we thought the sun, our star, was a mass of burning gas. And that's how the energy is produced. By 1938, we suddenly realized uh oh, ain't no way you can get enough energy by we know the mass of the sun and we know the energy output and stuff. Somebody, some very smart physicists, figured out that it was nuclear fusion which nobody knew anything about before that really. Uh, Hydrogen and helium and uh, heavy hydrogen and stuff like that. And they were talking about uh, an incredible increase in the amount of energy per pound of stuff. Uh, And then you can see that if you take a big bomb in World War II, it released the energy of about 10 tons of dynamite and make a big hole in the ground too. It was called a blockbuster. Well, the first atomic bomb, a fission device, in 1945, released the energy of 15,000 tons of dynamite. Not 10, but 15,000. The first fusion device, fusion is what powers all the stars. The first fusion device released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite. That was a fission (laughs) bomb in 1952. And the Russian sent one off in sixty-one. Uh, I guess it was Tsarbamba. Bomba, fifty million tons of dynamite. One stinking weapon. Uh, I mean, and the important—the reason I go through this—is that suddenly you've got not only a way of mass destruction, but propulsion to the stars.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
17: And I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel. In 1962, at Eurojet General Nucleonics, my boss was John Luce. Uh, Dr. Luce was um, a brilliant guy. He was head of the fusion work at Oak Ridge, and we hired him away. And uh, he had 40 patents. This was a clever man, gentleman, too. And we did a study and concluded that, well, if you want to put out the dough, you can go. I put it simply.
2: Right, (laughs) uh, Right.
17: It won't be cheap. And when I was working, when I say it won't be cheap, many people have no idea, because they don't work in that crazy world of advanced technology development. I was working on nuclear airplanes in 1958 at GE. Uh, Our budget that year was $100 million. We employed 3,400 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. We're not talking about six professors and 12 grad students here. They're, They're big programs. The stealth aircraft must developed to $10 billion over 10 years in secret for Lockheed. So uh, that, that's an important part of this, in other words. A uh, few guys can't. It's not a question of a few guys getting together and deciding how. Well, let's see what we can do about this. It takes a major effort. And the taxpayer, you know, we've had a lot of these big programs. Most of them have gone nowhere. Some of them have gone everywhere kind of thing. The Manhattan Project, for example, with weapons, the pure weapons, the stealth aircraft. The, the first, our first spy satellite, the Corona spy satellite. And I have no idea whether that name came because the Roswell incident actually happened just outside Corona. In right. Spacecraft. But... The Corona spy satellite, the first 12 launches, they knew that the U2 was gonna get shot down as it did uh, because the Russians were getting smarter. They started in, in the 50s. The first 12 launches were failures. Those are expensive. In secret, nobody knew about it. See, so nobody can say, what are you spending our money for blowing things up? The 13th one was a success and got more data then all the U two flights that had preceded it about what was going on in Russia. I mean a satellite, you know, is in constant operation and it spent a lot of time going right over the Soviet Union. The whole program was done in secret. And I love the way they got their data back. They deorbited the film canisters <laughs> which were caught in the air by Air Force planes. He released them over the Pacific. And of course he knew where things were going and, and Orbits are predictable and so forth. But it's kind of a different way of getting data back, isn't it? But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, you got a problem. you got a solution. You don't have a better solution. We need the information. Let's do it. And when it comes to national defense, uh, cost is not the paramount concern. You know what I mean? Yeah. How much is it going to cost? Well, oh, Okay, that's, if that's what it costs, that's what we'll spend. Because it was absolutely essential that we know whether the Russians were gearing up to attack us. There were many people who said they were. And so the fact that we could get actual data, evidence, that showed that they weren't building up all over was very important and probably kept us from having a war, because there were many people who would say, well, if they are, we better get them before they get us. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Can you imagine what that would have resulted in? You know, I'll drop my bomb, then you drop yours. And, you know, we have a long history of uh, underestimating the Russians. In 1948... Uh, General Leslie Grobes, who headed our nuclear weapons, the Manhattan Project, was asked, how long do you think it'll take before the Russians build the nuclear weapon?" Well, he went on for some time that the Russians, you know, didn't, they had lost 20 million people during the war. They didn't have the industrial capacity we had. They'd been bombed all the hell. Uh, it'd probably take them at least eight years. Well, said this in August of forty-eight. About 13 months later, the Russians set off their first bomb. We had vastly underestimated them. We did not have, in two ways, we didn't have a radar net. What do we got to worry about, you know? And then we thought they didn't have any big airplanes. they certainly didn't show any during the war. And then all of a sudden at one of these big May Day uh, celebrations, I'll call it, here come all these big airplanes. Son of a gun. They looked just like B-29s. What they had done, we had left the B-29 over there, was uh, bringing Lend-Lease stuff, and there was some something wrong with it, and they couldn't send it back. And they copied it. Chinese copy, if you mm-hmm. will. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they built a whole bunch of these, these stupid, you know, Eastern Europeans. They don't have Harvard and Yale, after all. Well, that, that was very much the attitude, and it cost us because that gave them a chance to catch up much more than they would otherwise if we'd recognize that they had the capability. Yeah, they'd gone through a war, but that didn't mean they were stupid. There had been Nobel Prizes given to Russian scientists, believe it or not, guys. But uh, and I'm sensitive about this because my all oh, four of my grandparents were Russians.
2: So. That's understandable. Absolutely.
17: What I'm saying is that things move in mysterious ways in this world. of war. why things get done or don't get done, who does them and so forth, can be totally wrong. And, you know, I, I've talked, my uh, uncle had come over to the United States from Germany in 1938 and he had tried to get more of the family to come with him because he saw the handwriting on the wall and Hitler was talking about what he was going to do and Mm -hmm. Jews were not uh, in good shape over there but he couldn't get relatives this is Germany the land of Goethe and Beethoven you know they wouldn't do stuff like that that's crazy so they wouldn't leave and they got slaughtered in the concentration camps because it's hard to believe that other earthlings will behave that badly toward other earthlings you know
2: yeah until it Uh, happens
17: yeah after it happens oh yeah i guess we should have realized that yeah what i'm saying is we make judgments often based on insufficient information It's one of the things that characterizes the attitude of the astronomical community about UFOs. They don't think you can get here from there. They don't think people can keep secrets. They don't think there's any evidence. And so, therefore, they're not going to look for any evidence. And it's a constant problem when I look at astronomical texts. Where's the reference to the large-scale scientific studies about UFOs? Although, dismiss UFOs are right. And my height, my college classmate, uh, Carl Sagan, for three years uh, in two different books said there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings. No mm-hmm. evidence was provided to substantiate this totally false statement. It's exactly the opposite. The Blue Book Special Report 14 showed the better the quality of the sighting, the reliability. The more likely to be unexplainable. But don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up. And that same applies so you can't get here from there. Now, why would anybody expect an astronomer to know anything about advanced propulsion systems? Think about that, that's not his balawick. Well, I worked on nuclear airplanes, nuclear rockets, and I wonder how many people listening are aware that in 1969, Three different organizations operated nuclear fission rocket reactor propulsion systems on the ground. These weren't little toys. Uh, At Westinghouse, we tested the NRX-A6, fancy (laughs) title. It was less than eight feet in diameter. Liquid hydrogen propellant went in very cold and came out at 4,000 degrees. The power level was 1,000, in our case, 1,100 megawatts. Now, Hoover Dam produces 2,000 megawatts. Hoover Dam is enormous. (laughs) Ours was 1,100 megawatts. Aerojet tested one of the 1,000 megawatts. And Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory tested the Big Daddy Phoebus 2B nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system, also under 8 feet in diameter and also with an exhaust temperature of 4,000 degrees. Not much works at 4,000 degrees that we know how to make. <laughs> I better head. add. And uh, the power level was 4,000 megawatts, twice Hoover Dam. <laughs> now, we, these were all successful, and we were so delighted because we listened, and we didn't know whether our system would work well. <laughs> Nobody had done it before. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> And what joy! And they canceled the damn program! You know, that, 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 that's weird. Uh, why would you do that?
2: Hey guys, Ryan here. The Summer in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shout-outs on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support, and keep looking up.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Okay, so we have this idea of like, you know, the physics and the propulsion behind it. And then you have the people who who relate this to the UFO topic. And one of the cases you brought up was Betty and Barney Hill and the idea of like, how could they get here? This, that, where did the Hills go? I would love to know how you got involved with a Betty and Barney Hill case and with working on your, your, your books with Kathleen Martin.
17: I've read the book, The Interrupted Journey uh, by John Fuller, the Betty and Barney Hill story. And then I had the lucky opportunity going back to Westinghouse again. I did, did media stuff there, and the guys from the, the same talk show that I had been on that got me moving along, called me and said, uh, we're bringing Betty and Barney Hill to town. We thought you might like to know. And they told me where they were staying, which mm-hmm. is very unusual. That's usually not stuff, information you give out. So I called, and I had dinner with them. This is about 65, 1965 or so. And I was listening to see if they'd said anything that expanded upon what was in the book. You know, were they going to exaggerate? And they weren't. I was very favorably impressed with them. I mean, Betty is a social worker. Barney's a civil rights uh, i mean, activist and worked for the post office. But I was very impressed. And then I was the first to do work on, I encouraged Marjorie Fish. On the Betty and Barney Hill Star uh, Betty Hill Star Map, I got a call from Coral Lorenzen at APRO, the Phenomena Research Organization. Marjorie had asked her for the names of any scientists that could maybe or she could work with or talk to or so forth. In she called me and, you know, can I give her your name and so forth? And I said, oh, sure, I'd be delighted. And so I was traveling a great deal, and I was near Toledo, Ohio. I stopped by to see Marjorie, saw some of her star map models. I was the first to publish about her star map models, indicating they came from Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 reticuli, and the constellation of reticulum, 39 light years away as it happens. So I got involved early on published a paper in saga magazine about the star map with mm-hmm. bobby Ansley slater uh, i wasn't writing much myself at that time worked with other people and that then i encouraged terry dickinson who was editor of astronomy magazine i'd gotten to know him he came to one of my lectures in milwaukee and uh, He's still around, he's not editing, he's retired, like I'm supposed to be at the end of this year.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little later for sure. <laughs> Don't think I was gonna bring that up.
17: Well, the the, the kicker is that uh, the response to the article in Astronomy Magazine, uh, which he did at my suggestion and talked to a lot of people, uh, I didn't force his hand at all. Got more reaction than anything they'd ever published before. So they published a number of letters over the next year, and then they put out a 32-page full-color booklet, The Zeta Reticuli Incident, They immediately sold 10,000 copies, which is unheard of for this kind of thing. Oh. And then the publisher was put under a lot of pressure, and they decided to sell the rest of them. They printed 30,000 copies, I think, and uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I wound up with 16,000 copies in my garage. <laughs> Sold them all. <laughs>
2: wow. I wish I
17: had some. I'd sell them again. Beautiful <laughs> color, 32-page, full color. Uh, There's But But meanwhile, I had seen Betty. I was working on a movie UFOs are real and visited her with a camera crew. We had done the uh, Tomorrow Show together, Betty and I, with tom snyder and I, I have to give him credit for something uh some media people are really worthwhile he was one of them uh merv griffin was another but with tom uh, he brought betty out first then he brought me out i was in the, the green room and, and there was no audience and we were taking segments and I said, you know, I told him, I said, the public won't know that Betty's a social worker. She's a very respectable individual. She's not the woman who's scrubbing the floor. And uh, so the first question really came back on is he asked Betty about her background. So I give him credit for that. Not everybody would do that. Right. And then something else. At the end of the show, he stood up. He had been sitting down all the time. Son of a gun, he's about six foot seven betty is five feet and i'm five nine and a half on a good day <laughs> <laughs> what i'm saying is he could be a very intimidating presence if he tro- chose to use that but he didn't and i give him a lot of credit for listening to my suggestion in the first place and for not intimidating us. it was a good discussion a good program i really enjoyed doing it and with merv uh, he was a pleasure he has so Sensible questions, and I did a show twice actually. But after the first show, we had a live audience. I asked him. I said, gee that, that was fun. I really enjoyed that." And because he, he was sharp, and he said to me, There's "Just the two of us standing there," he said, "I try to keep the show at a level of after dinner conversation. You're having friends over for dinner, and what kind of questions would they ask?" And he did a great job of that. Now Merv isn't a scientist, but boy, he was a very bright guy. You know, I really appreciated the fact that uh, he, had, he had done some work. He asked sensible questions. He was cordial. He represented the audience in a very clever kind of way. So some of these guys really serve a useful purpose, not everybody. But uh, so I, I, I've been to Betty's house, had been several times. Uh, and that's how Kathy got to know me, and uh, she once told me that. had said, If you ever need any help, there's one guy you can trust, and that's Stan Friedman. <laughs> so we did three books, and uh, they're all listed at my website, incidentally, www.stanfriedman.com. And uh, the ones by the three of us are autographed by both of us. We use book plates. So everything I send out gets is autographed. And look, I know I, I put myself in the people's place. They're they're buying a book and we have discount prices, but still well, I don't they deserve an autograph? And just so they know it's coming from me and not from some bookstore. I got nothing against bookstores. They sell my books. <laughs>
2: No, that's a good but, point, though. It's that extra personal touch.
17: Yeah, and uh, I can say I'm on the Internet, uh, www.stantonfriedman.com. dot com. you spell Friedman right, though? F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.
2: Well, Stan, one of the other ones cases I wanted to get in with you, um, which you you know more than anyone else on this one. What I always found fascinating is how how you basically helped break the story of Roswell when you met with Jesse Marcel. I would love if you could tell us that that story um, before we we move on here okay. to
11: some listening. Well, I was questions.
17: doing a, a, a television interview in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, before speaking at Louisiana State University. there's that the Local television station. I was supposed to do three interviews. And uh, the guy was very helpful and uh, nice. And, and he said, You know, the guy you really ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. I said, Oh, who's he? I'd never heard of him. His next sentence changed my life. He handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? And he wasn't joking. There was nobody around. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. He was telling me facts. Well, so what do you know about him? Well, he lives in Houma, H-O-U-M-A. I didn't know where Houma was <laughs> in Louisiana, but uh, he's a great guy. You ought to talk to him. So the next day, I was at the airport early, and I called information. Some listeners may not be aware. Of. That's what you used to do when you wanted a phone number, and you didn't go to a computer because you didn't have one to go to. <laughs> <laughs> called the operator in Homa and there was a listing for Jesse A. Marcel, and I called him told him I was a nuclear physicist. I'd had a clearance for 14 years and so forth. Try to impress him that, you know, I'd been around a bit. And so he told me a story. People said, why'd they talk to you? Well, I wasn't threatening to him. I, I impressed him with being nuclear. Remember, he was the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the entire world, which was based at Roswell. The noisy negative is forget to tell you that usually. yeah. Just yeah. a bunch of ding. GIs, but yeah, they happen to be the guys who dropped the bombs on Alamogordo. They set off the bomb, and then the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and two more in Operation Crossroads, and so forth. I was the only group in the world like that at that time, and so I was very impressed with Jesse. This is a phone conversation. I got other names of people I can talk to in the next. Uh, I shared that with Bill Moore and in the next year or so we talked to 60 people connected with the event and yeah, I got lucky when I called the uh, I had a look in uh, Editor and Publisher Is there a newspaper in Roswell? What do I know about (laughs) Roswell? I'll be there in July but uh, uh, yeah, the Roswell Daily Record so I called the record to find out something about the town and the, the fact that it was the 509th that was there, the, the only atomic bombing group in the world. And uh, asked, I, was, I called the newspaper, and I had—I I found an article. We uh, found a date. We found some articles in newspapers. So I called the newspaper, and I said, I've got an article here that says uh, a guy named Walter Haut or Hott, uh, was the public information officer for the base. And before I could finish the sentence, oh, his wife works here. <laughs> <What? laughs> you no, know, So I talked to his wife, and uh, then I talked to Walter, and then he was a huge help, because not only was he a public information officer, which he was for the base, but he was a World War II bombardier, more than 20 missions over Japan. This wasn't a dink, again. And remember, he he actually dropped the instrument package over one of those atom bomb tests. that Yeah. Yeah. and you used your best guys to do that because if you don't get it in the right place at the right time you've wasted a bomb and at that time we didn't have bombs to waste so Walter was more than a public information officer and he knew many of the people helped me find other people and the big thing is he had a base yearbook which he made a copy of for me and I'd call him and say hey you know where any of these guys are well I remember Joe and I, last I heard he was in uh, Oshkosh or you know that was a big help one thing i learned and this is a lesson for investigators which i didn't know when i started you talk to somebody yeah i was there at the base at that time they'll remember colonel blanchard and many of them remember jesse marcel because he was the intelligence officer you remember anybody else who was there Ah, oh, come on now it was 40 years ago you know right. no i don't and then you talk you keep them in that time frame for another five minutes and then so said, hey did you talk to Joe Smith he was there I remember him and then uh, come up with three or four names he wasn't lying to me when he said he didn't remember and he didn't he had to think about it you know how many of us can you know rattle off I can tell you who I went to high school with but um, not the other people so it, it became an immense amount of labor and I certainly was convinced that we're dealing with a true story and there have been people who make up all kinds of phony, baloney stories. Jesse was very impressive. Look, you don't get to be the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the entire world by being an idiot. It, it, it's just, And, of course, his son, who was deceased also, was a medical doctor and served in intelligence work. And uh, I still can't believe Jesse Jr. was called back in at age 68. In the uh, reserves, he had been, and he was flying combat missions in Iraq in the Middle East. Yeah. A- after each sixty-eight hundred and thirty flying hours over there, we were that desperate, right? And I think they were trying to get him shot down so he'd shut up.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't be the most crazy way they've uh, tried to have a cover up for sure.
17: Uh, that's right. So, yeah, Roswell has been my, uh, and I'm a member, I was elected into the Roswell UFO Hall of Fame. (laughs) You'll see it at the museum. And for people who wonder, just to prove that there's interest, last year the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, New Mexico, had over 205,000 visitors. (laughs) And it's in the middle of nowhere, believe me.
2: Oh, yeah, I've been there. And my God, that was uh, one of the lengthiest drives through a desert I've ever experienced. <laughs> yeah,
17: yeah, I believe it. Because of, look, it's 200 miles from Albuquerque. Yeah. It's 200 miles from Amarillo. It's 200 miles from El Paso. Look, I grew up in New Jersey. There isn't anything in New Jersey that's 200 miles from where <laughs> I grew up
2: <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Well, it, it makes for a perfect place for something to crash or be tested. That's for damn sure.
17: Well, I'll tell you. People say, well, why, Uh, and I had an astronomer in England uh, say to me, why would an alien go to Roswell, uh, to New Mexico, all there is there is sand? I said, you ever been there? Well, no. I said, well, I have. I I take it you're not aware that two of our three nuclear weapons labs are in New Mexico, and that White Sands Missile Rangers were firing all our missiles. Mm -hmm. And they're both there because there aren't many people there. You don't fire missiles with a lot of people around, for goodness sake. (laughs) It's like a mistake. (laughs) The uh, Kirtland Air Force Base is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a natural place to put military installations, Alamogordo Army Airfield and stuff like that. So Roswell was there for that reason. Uh, And, you know, uh, crazy politics. Uh, the base was shut down by Lyndon Johnson because New Mexico didn't vote for him in the election when he won the presidency.
2: Oh, wow. That's a vendetta. Uh,
17: well, Lyndon was known to have strong feelings like that. About yeah. It. <laughs> That's but, very true. You know, how fair was it to the town? Many of the people worked at the base as a big base. Yeah. Uh, they had a 13,000-foot runway, and typically runways are eight or 9,000 feet. And that was because they had big B-36 bombers carrying nuclear weapons, and they needed six feet of concrete for a runaway. How's that? If you go out there now, you go out to where the base was, which is south of town, and you'll see... Uh, airplanes being cut up—it's it, a burial ground, if you will. Except they don't bury them; they cut them up and sell the parts. Okay. And uh, I don't know of any other place where you can do
2: this. Yeah, really. Uh,
17: uh, for all kinds of airplanes—big uh, ones, small ones, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it, it, it's been a fascinating story for me, and I will be there again. Uh, probably the last time uh, on the anniversary. They have a festival. That's the word. That sounds strange, but. Uh, <laughs> In July, around the time of the crash Anniversary right, And uh, I think last year I don't know, 9,000 people there For the weekend, something like that
2: That's incredible, and people don't realize like How much revenue that brings into that small town Every year
17: They earned it, you know When yeah. oh, London cancelled the base Which the German Air Force used to fly out of there It's a great place for flying It's at 3,500 feet, feet uh, No mountains close by You know Why would you close the facility? Because they didn't vote for him, of course. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And where did they move it? To Texas. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <Linden land. laughs> that sounds appropriate, yeah. Stan. Well the uh, the other thing that kind of connects here to Roswell, not kind of, the thing this is a big part of the Roswell case as well, is another thing that you you worked with and investigated. And I'd really love to hear your thoughts on where you stand on this now. It's the MJ twelve documents. Now we've had so many people argue this for so many years, but you wrote one of the most definitive books on these documents. So I'd love to hear, you know, now in two thousand eighteen. What is your stance on these documents? How much is real? How much is baloney? Where do you stand on that?
17: Most of the MJ-12 documents are phony. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's true. Most isotopes aren't fissionable either. Uh, You know, like it or not, most people can't run a mile in four minutes. (laughs) Nobody can. So there are at least three documents that I believe are genuine. The Eisenhower briefing document, the Cutler-Twining memo, And there's another one which doesn't come to mind at the moment. And as proof, um, it tells you something about research in the field. Philip Klass was Mr. Noisy Negativist himself, an avionics editor for Aviation Week in Space Technology. No, flying saucers are alien spacecraft. Nah, it's nonsense. And he challenged me on those documents, the cutler Twining memo in particular. Obviously, the memos are fraud because it's done in the large pica type, but I've got nine documents here done from the National Security Council, which name is at the top, and they're all done in elite type. So I challenge you to find any other genuine documents found in the same size and style and type, and I'll give you $100 each up to a maximum of 10 <laughs> uh, He did this rather publicly, and you have 60 days. Well, okay, I immediately went to my files, and unlike, it turned out, I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out until it never been to the Eisenhower Library or the Truman Library, and I spent weeks at them. And I immediately went to my files and I had the 20 pages done in the same size and style. Type. They didn't meet all this criteria, but uh, time frame, etc. So I was going to the Eisenhower Library, and uh, might as well check. Cause when I went there, it's easy to spot the difference, because one type is much bigger than the other one type. And so I made copies of 14 documents, no doubt about their being genuine. I found them at the Eisenhower Library, and uh, made copies of all of them, sent him the copies, and, and an invoice for $1,000. He would only pay me for 10, see? And he paid me. And then he got madder than hell when I included a copy of his check in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> the audience loves it.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah.
17: But, you know, it's typical of the intellectual bankruptcy of the pseudoscience of anti ufology. Don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up. And it's such a splendid example that he had never been to the library. And it turns out they have, like, 250,000 pages of NSC documents. And you're telling me they're all typed on the same typewriter? (laughs) Uh, I hope people recall that we used to use typewriters before computers were around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the MJ-12 documents, in other words, I'm convinced I did rather extensive work on the 12 members of the group. And I'm especially proud of my discovery, to my total surprise, I will admit, that one of the members was Dr. Donald Howard Menzel. And he was a debunker. He written three anti-UFO books. How could he be a member of a group that knew about crash saucers, alien potties, all that sort of stuff? Well, I saw a mention of his name in a knock- document uh, in the Benavar Bush files. He was the chief science advisor in the United States in this time frame. Outstanding uh, individual. And so I followed up on that. And had to get permission from three different people to look at his papers at Harvard, the Center for UFO Study. No, uh, UFO, whatever the name of the group was at that time. Uh, I got a research grant, and I went to the Harvard Archives after getting permission from three different people to see his papers. Written permission. Pain in the neck. But anyway, I, I didn't know what I was looking for. But let's see what we find. And it, there was a, a JFK file. Oh. That should be interesting. I know his UFO papers were elsewhere, and I've been there too. Kathy and I have gone to the uh, archives, the American Philosophical Society Library has his papers, and uh, also have his classes, papers, and so forth. Anyway, and one of the first things I opened up in the JFK files, there's a letter from uh, Menzel to Kennedy. Dear Jack, turns out they knew each other quite well, even had breakfast together on occasion, both living in the Cambridge area. And there's one area, this is after the election of 1960, when Kennedy was elected president. There's one area I may be of assistance to you. It's with regard to the National Security Agency. I've had a longer continuous association with them, 30 years of anybody. When we are properly cleared to each other, this is telling the president, when we are properly cleared to each other, I can tell you more about this. So he did a lot. It turns out he was a world-class cryptologist. Nobody knew that. He did all kinds of classified work. And I was the first to take note of that. And so suddenly it made sense that he was part of this group. But it was such a shock. And there were people saying, oh, he couldn't lead a double life. I wrote a paper, The Double Life of Donald Menzel. And there are loads of people who led double life. Uh, think of Burgess, Philby, and McLean, Russian spies who worked for British intelligence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for, like, 15 years, you know. Yeah. And you've got to be very careful when you're a spy, uh, it's, you know reveal, you know, you're, you're having access to information you shouldn't have access. But uh, once I found Menzel and then saw the connection with the other people, I was able to show that it made absolute sense. And with those three documents and class paying me a thousand dollars, it didn't hurt any in terms of the overall picture. And so I think I've dealt with all the arguments with the people who say the documents are fraudulent. Yes, I would Showed that a number of documents are fraudulent, so what? I, I, I'm not denying that. It'd be natural if some good stuff gets out, you flood the market with crap, and I hope it rubs off.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and we all we all know, like, th- these sort of campaigns have been used for years in terms of disinformation, of putting some truths amongst the lies, and that's the only way they can sort of get it out. It's extremely frustrating to have to wade through that, but there are people who will do that due diligence to do that. People like yourself, many other researchers who aren't out there, you know, speaking or or, um, you know on television, they're doing the hard work underground and finding the truth to those things.
17: Well, I have to have evidence in hand before putting my mouth in gears I mm-hmm. feel. As a scientist I have that requirement mm-hmm. on me show it. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell it. And so and I frankly I've been disappointed that so few people have visited all the archives. I've been to 20 archives, yeah. some of them many times. And it's the documents that make the difference.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Stan, now you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, You you made an announcement about, what, maybe a month ago now of your retirement from the field. And I mean, people were, (laughs) you know, mixed reactions all around, but everyone was like, oh, my God. It's, it's finally happening. Are you kidding me? Like, no. That Am least, I not entitled Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know, really. <laughs>
17: it, it's funny how that story came out. Uh, I had been interviewed by... Uh, I know the reporters at the local paper here, the Fredericton Daily Gleaner, and I'd called one, and I was uh, wanted to promote the fact that I was, uh, and he thought it was an interesting story, that I was going to undertake the debate of the century with Dr. Michael Shermer of the Skeptic Society. Ooh, We're supposed to have a big onstage live debate in Vancouver, British Columbia. On April the 8th, in an auditorium seating maybe a 1,000 people, for which they were charging a good price. And they were giving us good good fees for the, the two of us. And so I talked to this reporter that I've known. He sent other articles about me. And uh, he wrote a nice article. And then I got told the debate had been canceled. No good reason. There wasn't enough interest or something like that. And so I contacted the reporter, and so he, he said, well, is there anything, any way I can salvage this? Uh, got anything else that talk, you're talking about, or, you know, any events going on? What can we do? I said, well, yeah, I'm seriously thinking of retiring it before the end of the year. Oh, well, okay. So we talked about that for a while, and so that became the focus for the article. Only because the uh, debate had been
2: canceled. <laughs> 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 we needed some other... Uh... Uh, some other shocker in there, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, a
17: hook, if you will. And you know, look, I'm going to be 84 in July. Now, I'm still young for my age, it says here in small. <laughs> 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 but it's time. Like I say, I read that first book 60 years ago. Yeah. That's a long time. And, you know, it's getting harder to get around And my mind isn't as sharp as it used to be. Don't tell anybody that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though. I mean, you sound as sharp as a tack, but I I understand that. I understand you, you, in terms of entitlement, uh, yeah, I would say so at this point. I mean, you've broke some of the biggest stories in ufology. You've put in the work, and as a younger researcher, I mean, it's paramount to, to not... To, to understand that there was an age without the internet, God forbid, where we can just Google something now, and it's right there in front of us. <laughs> the fact that you yeah. went to these archives, you went out and you spoke to individuals face-to-face, that's a rarity for the younger generation these days. So, in terms of mm-hmm. earning that, I, I, I would say so. I, I guess my real question would be, Stan, you know, with this news of your retirement, I'd love to know what some of your most favorite or most memorable moments were throughout this entire, God, oh, 50, 50 plus years of research. I mean, was it a lecture you gave? Was it a debate? Was it a witness you well, spoke uh, to? I know I know it's probably a very broad question.
17: It, it, there's, there's a mix of things. When it comes to lectures, I'll never forget that Hawaii is supposed to speak, and we lived near San Francisco, and, and took my wife. What the hell? What's going to And got five days, and uh, only have to be there for an afternoon lecture and stuff. And I called them when we got there and said, you know, you need me to do any radio or television programs? You know, I'm available. I'm here. No, no, just show up. It was an afternoon talk. Here we are in a hall seating over 900 people. And there were Twenty, like, 26 people at my lecture. (laughs) 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 That was, uh, I mean, I gave a a good lecture. You know, it's not their fault. But uh, that was an embarrassing moment. Uh, On the other hand, I had an audience of more than 2,000 in Turkey. Wow. Uh, Had a great audience. Uh, Saudi Arabia was interesting. Uh, Oh, yeah. What was that one? Something like a World Competitiveness Forum or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard of the people who called me and, uh, I did some checking around. Is this thing real? And uh, then, as time went on, and people said, Man, you're going to Saudi Arabia? Are you crazy? You've forgotten you're Jewish? They won't even let you in. So I called the person that I was in contact with. It was a woman, incidentally, which tells you something. Some people think women don't get a chance to hold any positions. Well, they do. Mm -hmm. And I explained to her, I said, Look, people are saying you're going to get there, and they're going to say, You can't come in here. And she said, look, we've had many Jewish speakers at these things. No problem at all. And so I went, and there wasn't any problem at all. It was like I was at a meeting of my father's cousin's club. <laughs> you know, yeah. People forget Jews and Arabs are both Semites. So that that was an interesting experience. I enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed the visits to places I never would have gotten. Otherwise, I've spoken in Hong Kong. I've spoken in... Dairy in China, in South Korea, uh, in Australia, uh, Argentina, places like that. G- Gotten to Israel, Germany, France, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, <laughs> Finland. <laughs> so, uh, seeing the world, uh, Hungary, Bul- my last foreign talk was Bulgaria. Who would ever, how would I ever get to Bulgaria? <laughs> yeah, you know? uh... I spoke in uh, Poland and Warsaw. We had, the warsaw ufo society had a big crowd
2: for me geographically how people respond to your talks or the theories you're bringing forward does it vary from region to region at all you know due to like not cult- that cultural influences yeah
17: i mean sometimes when talks have been translated like i didn't speak in polish mm-hmm. you know but uh, they seem remember i'm talking about evidence not beliefs so When I can show, show them Blue Book Special Report 14, show them the numbers, and numbers tell a story, after all, back up what I say, it doesn't seem to matter. Because the universal response is, I didn't know about that. I never saw that report. Uh, You know, uh, that's standard. So uh, it's very hard for people to reject what you're saying when they have to admit, no, I wasn't aware of that and when you showed it to them. And so uh, I found it's a way to see the world, be a ufologist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who would have ever thought?
17: <laughs> Not me, I'll tell you. My classmates at the University of Chicago would certainly have, what are you doing, Stan? <laughs> oh, I'm <laughs> lecturing about flying saucers. What would you expect? <laughs>
2: So, as a new generation of UFO researchers start to crop up, you know, I'm 33, so I'm no, you know, I'm no young chicken, but I'm also sort of in that, that midway point in my research here. What advice would you give to people younger, even younger than I am, in terms of the future of both the UFO field and, I guess, humanity in general? What advice would you give them the hope, you know, that this is a topic worth pursuing?
17: Well, I think the biggest thing is to make people aware that our understanding of where we fit in the scheme of things has changed drastically. Frank Drake was talking about maybe six thousand planets that could send signals. The number today might be six billion. The fact that there are so many planets is a total surprise to the astronomical community. And the fact that uh, we have the technology. When the British astronomer royal in 1956 was asked about space travel by Time magazine, it's utter bilge. What good would it do? Who would pay for it? What we need is better equipment for astronomy. That was a year before Sputnik, and the field that's benefited the most, of course, has been in astronomy. So uh, our attitude about how old the universe is, how big the universe is, how many planets there are. You know, Bishop Usher in 1650 or so was saying that the world was created in 4004 B.C. Uh, I don't think he said on a Thursday afternoon, but he (laughs) went back through the Bible about begatting. Now we say, oh, well, they left six zeros out of that. It's four billion years ago that the Earth was created, four and a half billion. was a half billion between friends? Uh, <laughs> and so these concepts, uh, in the 1920s, uh, the sun produces its energy by uh, burning gas. What do we know about fusion? But fusion is what produces the energy throughout the universe, all the stars. But there's an enormous difference. And so uh, suddenly what seemed impossible is now possible. Mm -hmm. Space travel. And it was just like uh, a great astronomer in 1902, uh, 1903, uh, October, that if there was one thing he was sure of, man, would never fly any distance in a vehicle, maybe with a balloon. But that was two months before the Wright Brothers first flight. We assume what we don't know doesn't exist. There ain't nothing we don't know. We're smart guys, you know. We're the cream of the cream. (laughs) And throughout history, that's been shown to be wrong. Jet engines, for example, were left out of town. Base travel was thought to be absurd. And I've seen numbers, you know, how how heavy a rocket would have to be to get a man to the moon. A million, million tons would have to be. But if you make enough stupid assumptions, you can prove anything is impossible. (laughs) Well, assume a single-stage vehicle with a very low exhaust velocity. Pretty soon you've got a huge rocket. That's not how we do things. Engineers' job is to get it done, not to show you all the ways in which it can't be done. Mm-hmm. That's not much use. And so people often aren't aware of their biases and prejudices getting in the way of their evaluation. Thank goodness there are people who say the heck with that. I mean, Billy Mitchell, remember, was court-martialed. He say, said man would be sinking ships with, from airplanes. That was in the 20s. In 1941, late November, there was an article in the program for the Army-Navy football game and showed a picture of the USS Arizona, this huge battleship. And in the text, it said, nobody's ever sunk... big ship from the sky that was eight days before pearl harbor and there went the uss arizona to mm. bottom, killing i forget 1100 people something like that yeah i don't know how to do it therefore it can't be done right no wrong <laughs>
5: yeah.
17: so, there, there's a word of caution whenever you find the noisy negativists because it usually means the well, flying saucers can't be real because if they were i would know about it seems to be the attitude Right. But when I, I, I'm i sneaky, I check my audiences. When I talk about this large scale studies, I ask how many people have read them. And I think it sobers the audience to realize I'm not the only one who hasn't read that stuff. None of these people have. Just about. Yeah. Maybe I better listen to this guy. And I show them the documents or the reports or whatever so they know I'm not just making it up uh, out of my head. And so we need to be very careful about presuming we know what the future is. And if you look around, look at radio. Mm -hmm. There were people who were saying they would never communicate any long distance with radio. What are you kidding? And that goes back to, say, 1900. And look where we've come from with that. And every direction you look, you find that progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. And if we forget that, we step into the potholes of it's impossible.
2: Yeah. What we,
17: what we really mean is, I don't know how to do that, <laughs> but maybe somebody else does, you know, like aliens. And the kicker is, again, if, if there's been intelligent life in the neighborhood for a, a billion years, why would it be surprising that they're doing things that we can't do? And that, that business of how many places there are. We assume, uh, because Earth is 4.3 light years from the next star over after the sun, that everybody is stuck with. There are loads of stars that have other stars less than a light year away. My favorite stars in the whole case,
9: uh,
17: Zeta-1 and Zeta-2, they're an eighth of a light year apart, for goodness sake, you know, we're 39 light years from here. That gives you an entirely different perspective. We've got people saying, anybody coming here would have to come from a 1,000 light years. Absurd! sure give me five <laughs> ten
2: <laughs> and 20 exactly uh, wow well Stan I mean I'm going to be seeing you in Halifax Nova Scotia uh, this upcoming May I'll be speaking at the Esotericon, where you're going to be the keynote speaker at that event oh, as that's well true. so I guess you know for any of our listeners who live in that area I hope they'll come out and see you give this talk do you and have it's
17: any free ad- too I'm it, told yes
2: how, how rare is that it's yeah it's being put on by your your nephew you, Paul Kimball, who does so much amazing work in Halifax, you know, with local government, and was able to obtain all these speakers to put on a conference for free for the public, which I think is an incredible feat.
17: It's my celebratory swan song. How's that? (laughs)
2: <laughs> Absolutely. One that I'm so honored to be a part of and one I hope everyone will come to. Well, that being said, Stan, um, one more time, where can we find all of your work, your books? Give that to us.
17: Okay, they're all listed on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. you got to spell Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And I list my books and other sources like Blue Book Special Report 14. I don't believe it's proper for me to talk about something and say, well, I don't know where you can get that. That's why I've sold a lot of copies of Special Report 14. And so if you want an education, incidentally, in one of my books, Top Secret Magic, about the MJ-12 documents, I list a dozen PhD theses that were done uh More than 10 years ago, so there are more now. So there is information out there, and I have loads of references. I just finished looking at an old book, First Contacts The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, which was done more than 20 years ago. And there's nothing sensible about flying saucers in it, no references to the big, large scale scientific studies or any of the technology stuff or whatever. Uh, Why don't they put pictures of nuclear rocket engines for goodness sake (laughs) (laughs) they're available but uh, so my website has the information so uh, you know I believe in interacting and communicating. I've been doing this for a long time. If I didn't enjoy what I was doing, I wouldn't be doing it. You know, after the first 500 lectures, you'd say, the hell of a <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm over 700 now,
2: so Yeah. away we go. Well, it's extremely invigorating, you know, as someone who has a couple times been like, I want out of this. It's invigorating to see that it's worth the study. It's worth the research oh, yeah. uh, to keep doing it to keep looking for those answers no matter what it is like you said the future is unpredictable and I think that's extremely exciting so I can't wait to see where it goes and I know this isn't the last we've heard from you Stan it might be you know your retirement from research but it certainly isn't your retirement from the field overall so I have to thank you so much for coming on somewhere in the skies today it was an immense pleasure and honor and uh, I will see you in May I will
17: see you there and there won't be any uh, I hope there won't be any snow on the ground. I hope it that point. <laughs>
1: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network.